Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris, and I'll be doing today's uh, Bible reading for us. Uh, so the reading is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, which is found on page 247 of the Bibles from, from up the back. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to, to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, Send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, Anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. 
Thanks, Chris. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm one of the uh, ministers uh, here, and it's my great pleasure to be able to uh, spend a bit of time with us <coughs> thinking about uh, 1 Samuel and David in particular. How about I pray before us before we begin? Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray that you would make your word a swift word, uh, passing from the ear to the heart and from our hearts to our lips and our conversations, that as rain returns not empty, so neither might your word, but instead that it would accomplish that for which you had given it. Amen. Well, tabloid magazines exist because people love to see how the rich and the famous live their lives. Uh, the famous people of today are the uh, sort of the kings and queens of our world. This is my attempt at a tabloid. Uh, and we like to see how those people live. We love this idealized life that they might have. Uh, when you tune into a red carpet walk, you get to see people uh, wearing clothes that have labels on them that uh, uh, mean that they're super special. One day I might own one piece of clothing like this. Uh, you see uh, women with jewelry on their wrists and around their necks that cost more than our houses do. And we like to look at the beautiful people walking and talking with other beautiful people, this airbrush reality, and we think, wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of that great ideal? We think of the rich and famous people as people who have mega houses. You know, they have a wrapping room or a separate fridge for their avocados. Famous people's lives are full of holidays, which are themselves a cavalcade of Instagrammable moments. Their holidays never have that deceivingly advertised Airbnb that we stay in. And their pictures on Instagram never have a kid throwing up in the backseat of the car. It is all beachside cabanas, rooftop parties and bleached smiles. So many people love to imagine what it would be like to have that kind of life that the social media uh, platforms find ways to make us uh, pretend that that is us. We can put filters on our photos to make it look like maybe we're part of that thing. I want to be part of the ideal and I want to share that ideal with others. But of course the reality is for people in positions of power, the kings and queens of our modern age, life isn't easy. In fact, to be one of those people is often a lot messier than we would like to see. We don't want to see that. Sometimes it can be that internal thing that is messy. Our power messes with our perception. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was uh, believed to be the seventh wealthiest man of all time. And when he was interviewed and he was asked, how much money is enough? He, he replied, just a little bit more. Can you imagine being that wealthy? You think he has absolutely hit the peak, the pinnacle. But there is something in his heart that means that he is always restless, that he never really finds a true sense of contentment. Uh, if it's not internal, it can be external. You think of people like Hugh Grant, the great man of the 90s and noughties movies, uh, but he had to sue a number of English papers because they hacked into his phone. Even the most private and intimate parts of his life were thrown out for everybody to see and he had no agency or no control. We could read about uh, the Harry Potter actor Daniel Radcliffe when he was interviewed about uh, what he thought about fame and he said, well, if, if I have kids... Uh, my great thing that I'm going to work at is that they would avoid fame at all costs. While those Instagrammable moments might look very attractive, 
the reality of fame and power can be a very different thing. Uh, in term two, we're going to be spending some time exploring the, uh, the beauty and the tragedy of power and fame as we look at the life of King David and 2 Samuel. Arguably, he is the most famous character in the Old Testament and is certainly the most lauded of kings. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. It's a real temptation when we think of David to imagine him like we would a rich and famous person in modern days. After all, David is the one who defeats Goliath as a mere teen. David is the one who establishes Jerusalem as the Jewish capital. He's a Renaissance man who writes dozens of psalms for people to read. But what we're going to see over the next term is that he's also an imperfect king. For all of his victories, we're also going to see the brokenness and the heartbreak, both internal and external, that comes with being in this position of power. Unlike our modern media, the Bible doesn't shy away from this uh, depiction of brokenness even when we're looking at power. And at the risk of giving you a spoiler alert for the whole of the Bible, we're going to see that really as we look at David and as we look at any king, we're seeing only the merest shadow of Jesus, God's great king, God's forever king, who fulfills all of these things that David is going to struggle with. A question we will be able to ask ourselves both at church on Sunday, maybe at growth group during the week or, or just uh, by ourselves in our own quiet times is, uh, what does real authority look like in my life? Is it about power and privilege and parties for me? Or this term is God pointing us to something deeper and more profound and maybe more self-sacrificial. Uh, weirdly, over the next two weeks, we're not actually jumping into 2 Samuel, but we're spending two weeks in 1 Samuel. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the disintegrating relationship between King Saul and David, this man who's, who's uh, on the rise. Uh, but this week, we're going to see David getting anointed. And as we're also going to look back at the beginning, we're going to look at three things. A king excommunicated, a king that is unregulated, and then finally, a king that is anticipated, which is David. Well, listen to the words at the end of the very first chapter of uh, the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. We're told, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. In the beginning, God makes the heaven and the earth and God has a special relationship with the human beings that he's made. We're God's representatives on earth. Adam and Eve were called to be fruitful, but they're also called uh, to rule, to show dominion over the things uh, in creation. God is the true king of all creation. He's the one that speaks all things into being. He flings the stars into space and he's the one that knows every microbe at the deepest point of the ocean. But he has a special relationship with the, the peak of his creation, human beings made in his image, called to rule on his behalf. And at the end of Genesis 1, we're told that it is very good. But of course, we know that as Genesis continues, we're introduced to the great rebellion. Eve listens to the serpent. Is it really good for God to be king? 
did he really say to you that you shouldn't eat for that tree? Or is that God just serving his own purposes? You should be sovereign over your life. You should make your own decisions. Equally, we know that Adam fails in his responsibilities. Here's a golden moment for him to say, I know that God is good and he has told us what we should do, but instead he's passive and he doesn't actually love or care for his wife. Instead, he joins in rebellion. As they wrestle the crown from God's head and they say, we are the ones in charge, we choose what to do as they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is the moment where the relationship between God, the Lord of all creation, and humankind, part of creation, is forever marred. From now on, we see the tension between uh, God and humankind as they try and have as much control as they can, but also human beings and each other as we try and have rule and dominion over each other. Adam and Eve are excommunicated from Eden. The good and right and proper relationship they had is broken. But even in the midst of this uh, horrifying moment, we're also reminded that God is a God of redemption, that God that wants to fix and restore things. In Genesis 3.15, the serpent is told that there is going to be enmity between its offspring and that of Eve, that one day there will come a serpent crusher, that he will strike the serpent's head and the serpent will strike his heel. This means that throughout the Old Testament, as we're reading the Bible, we're waiting for this king who's going to come, the serpent crusher that is going to bring things back into a right relationship. From the very beginning, we're waiting for Jesus. But instead, throughout the Old Testament, we see how people try and fit the crown on their own heads again and again. And you look at the story of someone like Abraham, the great forefather of the nation of Israel, and you can see the external fear that he has. When he comes across Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, what does he do? He says that his wife isn't actually his wife, it's just my sister, because he fears a foreign king, not God the king. Even worse, when God promises to make a great nation out of Abraham... Internally, Abraham takes it upon himself to be the one who can fix that problem. If I'm going to be king of my own future, if I'm going to achieve what God is saying is going to happen through me, then I'll have to sleep with my wife's servant, Hagar, because that's the only way I'm going to have children. We could look to a book like the book of Judges where we see this uh, circle that goes again and again. A dozen times we see what happens when God's people try and do things on their own. And then God has to rescue them again and again. It's all caught up in the very last verse of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him. There's a clear sense in which Israel doesn't have a king. But that's because every individual wants to act like they are the king of their own world. I'm in charge. I am the boss. So long as human beings are excommunicated from the God of the universe we see the frustration that they experience in their own lives. And so the temptation is to think, well, if Israel does have a king, then maybe that will fix everything, stick somebody on the throne. But a king that is unregulated, a king that does what they want rather than what God wants, uh, only brings more problems for them. Uh, one of the challenges of owning a beautiful artwork is that over time, uh, art gets affected by uh, its own age, things dry out, uh, weather and things like that can affect it. And over time, things break down. And that's why they have restoration experts. 
Uh, their job is to look at a painting, to uh, analyze all of the paints that were used and to ask that question, how do I bring back things back to their original splendor? Can I capture some of that glory? Of course, that wasn't what happened to Elias Garcia Martinez's famous painting of Jesus. Uh, it was donated by his granddaughter to a collection of religious artworks in Spain. And an 80-year-old lady who was connected to the church said, well, if it's going to be fixed, I'm the one who's going to do it. So she decided that she could actually deliver it back to its former glory. And instead, she delivered what is considered to be the worst ever painting restoration of all time. In 1 Samuel 8, God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he warns them, this is what is going to happen when you seek your own kings. I'm not going to read uh, through uh, all of it, but if you get a chance this week, you can go back to 1 Samuel 8 and you can see that God warns them. When they say, give us a king to judge us, uh, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They haven't rejected you, God says. They've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing that they did all the way back when I brought them out of Egypt. But when they have a king, that king is going to live up to all of the things that you might expect for somebody who is in power. He'll take your sons and he'll put them to use in his chariots or his horses or running in front of his chariots. He'll take your daughters and he'll put them at work in your kitchens. He'll take the best of your grain and your vineyards and he'll give them to his officials and his servants. He'll take your male servants. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. When that day comes, you'll cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. God gives us a picture of what things are going to look like. And we see part of that picture when Saul comes into power. He begins as God's anointed. But over time, it becomes clear that he wants to do things his way. When God says, conquer another nation and do not leave a stone unturned, instead he keeps the best of the flocks and the best of these things. And when Samuel says, how come I can still hear sheep bleeding? He says, oh, no, 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 I just, I just kept it so I could give it as a, a sign of worship to God. Saul uh, wants to be clear that it, it is his power that he's interested in. And we see that he takes this good and beautiful thing that is God has put him uh, as to be a ruler over God's people and he makes it an ugly thing. And so as we start our passage today in 1 Samuel 16, we see the effects of this. God has told King Saul just earlier that God's favor has left him. And God's favor is going to land on somebody else who is after God's own heart. And so as he does this, he tells the now ancient Samuel to fill up a horn with the anointing oil and to head out to meet a guy called Jesse. But even as, he, as we do this, we see Samuel's fear is clear. Uh, we know that Saul has turned in a different direction because Samuel says, well, how can I go? Saul will hear about this and he's going to kill me. Similarly, when Samuel arrives in this little town of Bethlehem, under the pretense of making a sacrifice, we see that the people in the town are afraid as well. Saul, even if we're, you're here to do God's work, Saul has become a jealous man. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and they asked, do you come in peace? This is where Saul has landed. Rather than the Genesis ideal of being God's representatives here on earth, Saul's people live in fear that Saul will kill them even for following God's command. And so Samuel continues to maintain the fib that he's just uh, here to make a sacrifice. And so we come to the moment where God's next anointed king is going to be announced. But who's it going to be? 
Uh, on February 22, 2020, uh, the Carolina Hurricanes, which are an ice hockey team in the US, uh, were playing the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, their goalie, James Reimer, got injured, so they had to swap him out, but they had a backup. It was okay, a guy called uh, Peter Mrazek. But partway through the second period, Peter got injured by an opposing player, and now they had to ask, what are we going to do? In ice hockey, they only have two goalies in a team, but you need a goaltender. But here is where you have a fascinating thing in this sport. I only learned it this week. It's called an e-bug. It's an emergency backup goalie. Uh, each each uh, ice hockey venue, they I hire one e-bug. They don't even actually get paid. They just get to watch the game for free. And then if they, either team runs out of goalies, the e-bug can end up playing for either team uh, as the person that's going to fill in. And so on this day in 2020, a guy called David Ayres happened to be in the crowd. Uh, he was an insurance salesman by uh, trade, uh, but he also helped with the ice uh, rink maintenance. Uh, he was just over 42 years old. So he would become the oldest person ever to debut for a hockey team. He'd had a, a kidney transplant 15 years earlier, so he couldn't actually stand up to the rigours of being a full-time athlete. And his uh, amateur career in hockey had stopped because he got hit by a puck in his left eye, so he only had partial vision on one side. And yet on this night, he got to get dressed up, and he went out and he played for this team. And after a slow start, David Ayres would make eight saves in a row and he'd become the first ever e-bug to win a game of ice hockey. David Ayres was a truly unlikely hero, so unlikely that they, he didn't even have a contract, he didn't get paid, they had to work out some way to thank him afterwards. They didn't even have a bottle of champagne to give him. This is the kind of story we see when we come to the anointing of David. We know it so well, but we can forget just how unlikely it is. Jesse is just a, a, a backwater guy. Bethlehem is not a big town. And he has eight sons in total. Eliab, the oldest, makes his, an appearan, his appearance, and he looks like he's chiseled out of stone. Uh, he makes George Clooney look like a dropped pie. He is this attractive. This bloke looks perfect. And as Samuel anticipates, this is going to be the guy who comes to be the new king. We're told this amazing verse. Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For the humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. There are lots of likely looking candidates there that day. But God, the God who delights in taking the least likely person and using them for great purposes, has other plans. Abinadab, Shammah, four other brothers are presented to Saul, sorry to Samuel, and each one looks ideal, but none of them are up to scratch. Kid number eight is so far down the totem pole that Jesse hadn't even invited him along to the occasion. He's out looking after the sheep. But under Samuel's instructions, Jesse sends for him. The message from God is clear. Anoint him, for he is the one. So verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil. He anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. And so here we find ourselves. It's helpful to understand a bit of this context as we get ready for the series. Saul himself was an unlikely character at the start. 
He's the king of a growing nation, but he's a king who's more interested in seeing the crown on his own head, and we're going to see a little bit more of that next week. On the other side, we have the eighth son of a man from a country town, at the time not impressive from any external measure, but God has seen this man's heart. And despite all of these difficult circumstances, God is going to do some amazing things through this man. And even more amazingly, it's going to point to the greatest king who will come 1,000 years later. Uh, so what do we make of this? Uh, particularly if you're visiting this week and you think, oh, this is kind of sad because I'm going to miss out on the whole series. How do we actually, is there some way we actually apply what we see in this first week to our lives? And so I want to encourage all of us for a moment just to think about whether or not uh, either Saul's situation or David's situation resonates with us and what it might mean. For some of us, it may be that we can be a little bit like Saul uh, ourselves. Uh, we love to serve God, uh, but when I serve God, if I'm really honest, uh, often it's with the crown firmly uh, on my head rather than uh, recognizing God and His authority. Am I keen to be on rosters on a Sunday morning, but I'd much rather be on those ones where people can see how smooth I am from the front? Is my service of the body of Christ tied to me having a little crown on my head where it's clear that I'm a person with authority? Now for me, sometimes one of the great challenges is when I serve at a, in a growth group or if I'm running a course, am I more interested in people understanding just how intelligent I am and that I'm more interested in pursuing that than I am seeing people sort things out from themselves and grow in the depth of their maturity. For all of us, we need to ask ourselves the question time to time, uh, who is the true king that I'm honoring with my life? Uh, do I pay lip service to God and I serve myself? Or am I willing to use my time and my talent and my resources to honor him uh, even when it might actually cost me. Uh, but maybe your problem is on the other direction. Maybe you're more like David in our story in 1, uh, 1 Samuel 16. Uh, the world is a scary place. There are all kinds of competing narratives. And it can be easy to feel like I'm a really unimpressive person. I'm the least. I'm the, I'm the one who doesn't understand things that well. Maybe I don't have much to give. And we can forget that when we are on the God's team, we are partnering with the Lord of the universe. We are partnering with the ones who created and sustains everything. And that God delights in using unimpressive vessels, what Paul calls a jars of clay, to show his glory and his power and his honor. In fact, this is the heart of the gospel message, isn't it? That God, who himself would take on human flesh, born in a back, the same backwater town as David a thousand years later. He would be laid in a food trough and that through this most humble and unlikely of circumstances, uh, God would bring uh, the message of hope and life and salvation for all people throughout all of time. Uh, this is the God who is capable of using you and me. Am I willing to consider that maybe my feeling of unworthiness, my lack of capacity, my lack of ability is the very qualification that God longs for me to recognize so that he can work through me rather than me thinking it is by my power? 
tomorrow we have a great example to see this actually worked out in reality. We have 160-odd kids who are going to be coming along to a, a, a week-long program here. We have a lot of passionate leaders. We also have a, a whole bunch of teenagers, some of whom have never had any teaching experience. But as they st step out with their acknowledgement of their weakness, all of the areas that maybe they don't feel confident, in God's mercy, they are part of something that could have eternal significance. Uh, where four hours away from a major city, we're a quiet little country town in New South Wales. Uh, but this week, the God of the universe could be changing, changing hearts in an eternally significant way. Uh, this is the same God uh, who loved his people Israel. He worked through Saul and David. And he is at a work through us, through the personal work of his son Jesus. Let's thank him for that now briefly in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Our Lord, we do thank you for an opportunity to set a little bit of uh, groundwork for our series this term. Uh, we recognize, Lord, that we so often want to be king of our own little world. But we struggle in the same way Saul did. And as we'll see this term, uh, David did as well. We pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts. That we would know that it's not about the external things we do or say, but that you would reshape us to be more like your son, Jesus. And we pray particularly for this week, that though we might feel like we're a, a very small part in a tiny corner of the world, that you are still at work amongst your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would see great things happen at KidZone this week. So we commit ourselves and this great ministry to you in Jesus' name. Amen.